This episode is sponsored by SoFi. Demolish your student loan with ridiculously low rates at SOFI.com. Hey, what's going on, everybody? And welcome to Listen Money Matters. Although gold dust is precious, when it gets in your eyes, it obstructs your vision. My name is Thomas, and I'm here, as always, with my good friend, Andrew. Andrew, how are you this morning, and what are you drinking, man? Dude, I'm good. It is beautiful outside after, like, two weeks of terrible weather. It looks like it. There's just, like, this shining sunlight on your face and, right now. And my windows are closed. It's insane. <laughs> it's, like, blasting in. And and I'm drinking an innocent gun. Uh, gun with two ends. Rum-aged beer uh and i didn't it, think you'd be drinking a beer to be honest do you know it's noon somewhere right <laughs> yeah, noon somewhere in the middle of the atlantic ocean right now <laughs> exactly and we're uh, podcasting from a ship this is pirate radio <laughs> it, it it was carefully matured for 57 days it I, I believe it gets ruined at 58 days but 57 guaranteed days okay and it tastes like it and you have to drink it right away that's right Yep. <laughs> they just open the doors of the factory and like, all right, get in here and drink it before it goes bad. <laughs> exactly. Sweet spot. I am just drinking some, uh, not Earl Grey, but Lady Grey tea. Mm. It's pretty good. That's his wife? Yeah. Yeah, I was a little bit worried, you know, is the Earl going to be mad if I, but hey. Do you know Do you know if she's also <laughs> British? She's probably British, <laughs> though right. probably not, not originally British. Mm. I don't think any tea is. <laughs> Anywho, today's catchphrase comes from uh, John M. Knight on Twitter. It is, although gold dust is precious, when it gets in your eyes, it obstructs your vision. You know, interesting, on that note, I was reading a book yesterday about all the technical difficulties of going to Mars. Mm. And it was just kind of talking about like all the the things we've done leading up to a potential Mars mission, all the Apollo missions and everything. Moon dust is uh, pretty bad stuff. What do you mean? There, there's no water and there's no atmosphere or there's, there's really nothing to dull it over time so it's just all super sharp and scratches everything and gets uh, <laughs> attached to like space helmet like what the clear visor part mm. the camera lenses but also because there's no atmosphere like for whatever reason the sun just like ionizes it or does something that makes it stick to everything Oh shit! So so if you didn't have a <laughs> visor on your the moon it would stick to your eyes like cut them and you wouldn't be able to get it off well, that would be like the the least of your problems if you didn't have your visor on on the moon. I mean, there's no atmosphere, so you're you're dealing with the vacuum of space. You know, it's going. It's probably going to pull your eyes out or something. This podcast is endlessly helpful. <laughs> so if you ever find yourself on the moon or Mars, your wear visor. protective glasses. Yeah, mm. yeah, that's our pro tip of the day. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So before this podcast becomes a space podcast. Uh, let's introduce today's guest. Uh, we have Benjamin Miller from Fundrise back on the show. Now, I know we talked with you, Ben, like a year ago, maybe more, about Fundrise. And back then, it was, I don't know if it was in the beginning stages. I think it was at the point where individual schmoes like me and Andrew couldn't quite invest yet. And uh, you're probably further along now than you were then, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, a lot of developments in the last 12 months. Okay. And Andrew, I know you actually, did you get in? Or did you have you been doing something with them at all? I did. I, I emailed uh, one of Ben's people and I was like, hey, remember me? I think I'm important. Um, put me at the top of your waiting list. <laughs> and they did. And, and I, I went in um, and I was like really actually very impressed. So I was like, we have to get Ben back on because I have a million more questions. 
I've been talking okay. to like, people at work about it. They have questions, so like, got to answer all these. So let's do a quick recap in case mm-hmm. people hadn't listened to that episode yet. What exactly is the idea behind Fundrise? So, um, so Fundrise started a few years ago. Uh, I, did, I was the first what they now call real estate crowdfunding company. And the, the basic idea is that real estate's all around you. It's a, it's a very good asset, and you really can't invest in it. It's, it's, it's not accessible to, to basically normal people. And so I thought about using the internet to aggregate enough people, enough dollars to be able to have a market-making power to invest in real estate. So that's where it started in 2011. It's, it's, it, over the few years, basically, we've evolved it um, where we started out allowing uh, basically um, individuals invest in single deals. And we've, and we've now allowed individuals to invest in these por- portfolios of, of real estate deals that... Um, are open to anybody. They're, the regs essentially limited it, practically speaking, to high net worth investors. Regs meaning have, regulations. Yeah, they, that, they, that's they, what rich people call regulations. <laughs> it's, it's, like, you know, it's like security security uh, uh, attorneys. So we, we have an in-house securities attorney. So that's that's a lot of the lingo. Mm. You know, he starts talking about ten B five and things like that. So the regs. Yeah, regs. Yeah. yeah. So, <clears throat> anyways. Um, the, the basic point is that uh, we now have these, these or SEC qualified offerings. They're like public offerings where we go direct to individuals rather than through middlemen, through Wall Street system. And uh, it takes something that was available to only high net worth investors. It makes available to everybody, uh, which is the sort of a, it's a innovation, something unique in the um, financial world so the, uh i know that if i go on the internet and i search like reit like r-e-i-t i there there will be something out there that will take my money and i can invest in it but you guys don't bill yourselves as a, a r-e-i-t in capitals you bill yourselves as like a small e capital r-e-i-t what's the difference okay so now we're getting into the nitty-gritty here so um Let's talk about what is a REIT, and then we'll talk about what how are we different. Mm-hmm. So a REIT is uh, means real estate investment um, trust, and basically it's a designation that lets you pool together real estate and not pay double taxation. There's no taxation at the corporate level. So if you get a dividend from Apple, you're going to pay taxes corporate level, and then you're going to pay taxes on the individual level. So basically Apple pays taxes on that money, and then mm-hmm. I also pay taxes on the money. Right. So Your capital REITs, gains, right? Right. So REITs don't. REITs basically are passed that right through. So there's so there's no corporate tax, okay. and and it was it allows basically individuals to invest in real estate very tax efficiently. So that's mm. that's really what a REIT REITs ultimately a a um uh, a tax designation, mm-hmm. and um and most REITs are are public companies, and so what happens is let's say that like. Uh, if I started building a portfolio of real estate, I spent maybe 10, 15 years buying real estate, or maybe 50 years buying real estate, I end up with this big portfolio of real estate, and then I might take it public. And we essentially, you'd roll it all up and go public like any company that, that eventually um, you know, builds up sort of wealth and, and, mm-hmm. and scale. To go public, you usually need about a billion dollars in assets and $100 million in, in income. And... and 
the, the two main things, two or three things that happen when you go public is normally people aren't going public at the price they bought that real estate. Right. I'd like the appreciated value they're going. Yeah, they, they mm-hmm. appreciate it. They mark it up. I mean, Facebook went public at $100 billion, right? I mean, people go public at a premium. So the people public. launching the REITs are making a sick amount of money just launching the REIT. Yeah, basically mm-hmm. by rolling it into the public markets, there's this huge premium. That's the first thing. Second thing is that and there must be risk involved with that because then you're basically buying into an asset that's like at today's market value, which could always go down. And yeah, I mean, it's a, you know, you get the, the the volatility of the stock market. I mean, the, let me I'll get there. That's, so point one is that the price that you're getting from most public reads are are uh, what I would say a sort of high watermark. Uh, second is that to go public. There's there's all sorts of costs. Like most most importantly, investment banks charge about seven percent, six seven percent to go public. Oh wow! So it'd be like seven percent of a billion dollars. Yeah, something. yeah. So it's huge numbers. Um, depending on the on the size of it, those there's some there's some REITs actually charge like twelve to fifteen percent, but it's wow. anywhere between like seven seven to fifteen percent in, in and, front fees. And okay, so wait to understand. Correctly, there's the there's the fee that uh, the investment bank charges to make it go public, and then you're saying the the yearly fee, like the load on the REIT, is seven percent. No, no, no. There's an upfront fee to go public of seven to twelve percent. Then there's ongoing costs of, you know, I mean, being public is not cheap. There's lots of regulatory costs. So there's a lot of costs of being public. So that's sort of category two uh, to go public. To carry a one, it's a very marked up price typically. Right. Category two is this, it's it's very expensive to go public. People charge you a lot of money, and then category three is basically once you're a public company, you there's there's a few things that um that end up happening. Right, you end up trading like a stock. So there's a lot of volatility. I mean, it's not it's it's highly correlated. So instead of owning a, a building that has cash flow, that you know, I mean, if I own a building with whatever. Starbucks in it, or if it's paying me rent and it's a very successful Starbucks, arguably it doesn't matter what's happening in the stock market, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't. I don't I mean it's going to send me rent. That Starbucks is going to like continue to, you know, people are going to buy coffee, and you know, the fact that there's like, uh, you know, Greece might default on their bonds, it just doesn't matter. Has no bearing on Starbucks mm-hmm. paying you rent for your. It shouldn't have any yeah. bearing. It's very unlikely, super super unlikely to have bearing have any bearing. But when you start ending up in a public REIT, you end up with a lot of volatility and correlation, and it starts feeling less like real estate, more like buying, uh, you know, an Apple stock or any kind of bond, any kind of stock that's public. So mm. you get a lot of volatility that's not natural. So basically, what we did, is we created an electronic, electronic REIT, an e-REIT, that lets people go directly into the real estate through a sort of semi-public vehicle, so with, without the markup. So when people are buying the real estate, they're buying at a par. They're coming okay. in basically like private pricing. They have, there's like basically no upfront fees, no investment banking fees. And to be clear, when you say at par, you mean like you bought the, the property for 10 million and that is the exact cost for the investors. Right. Right. So how are you able to do this if it's, you know, if it, if you have to have a billion in assets to go public, like what's the, uh, is there some rule you guys are able to operate under that lets you do it differently? Yeah. I mean, basically there's two big innovations here. One is that we go direct through the internet. So instead of using okay. uh, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley as your investment bank, we have no investment bank. We just go direct. We're selling directly through the internet. So there is no, there is no middleman. There's no, um, public, uh, you know, basically a markup. Mm-hmm. 
And the second is there's this reg that just got introduced um, middle of last year called Regulation A+. And so there was a new reg. The reg basically was designed to create kind of a, a way for individuals to invest in sort of smaller um, smaller companies or, or, or vice versa, allow companies who are sort of what they call middle market to have access to the public markets without having to go through this very expensive, laborious sort of true public, you know, uh, um, exchange listed approach to to raising money. So it's, it's a new okay. reg called Regulation A plus combined with the power of the internet, and that basically is has has we've built this sort of approach yeah. that lowers costs, more direct, you know, without the markup, without the volatility. So it it it. I mean, putting another way, a real estate person understand that basically you get, you know, public investors get private real estate pricing, and typically the the private real estate and the public real estate are trading at maybe like fifty um, percent more. Uh, public real estate is usually going to trade at a much much higher price than private right. real estate. So if you were to like look at the two, and and I have I have a limited knowledge of the two, but I know that like if you have to go public there is uh, some epic amount of documentation and um, transparency required um, so <clears throat> as like a two-part question one is that also required of you as per the new regulations and then two I believe that public REITs have to take 90% of their earnings and pass that through to investors are you also subject to that requirement do you pass more do you pass less does it not matter because it's a different regulation so, so basically, in both of those accounts were 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 this practically the same. We had to when we went when we took these uh, e-reads public. We had enormous amount of documents. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of pages of filings and going to the SEC and disclosure and audits. And we have semi and we and we have annual reports, annual audits, semi-annual reports. So, from a from a reporting point of view, it's very very similar. And there's a lot of regulatory oversight, and we have uh, we're an SEC registered investment advisor, so we have ongoing uh, uh, um, oversight from both as a public company in terms of going public, and then as an ongoing advisor. So there's a lot of regulatory oversight. The second is we're we're still a REIT, and all REITs have to pass through at least 90% of their income. So we still have the same sort of requirements from that point of view. So it's really comparable. It's just lower cost, more direct. Okay. So the last time that we talked, um, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like the original purpose of the business was for the individual investor to be able to invest in individual properties. Like you guys were able to structure a deal with like one skyscraper or something, and then everyone could kind of buy into that. But it sounds like the focus has sort of shifted over to this REIT model where you're kind of investing in just a, a pool of properties. Is that correct? Yeah, well, I mean, the 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 initial I impulse behind when I started real estate crowdfunding was this is a good you have good assets and you have investors who have a hard time finding good returns and mm -hmm. there's a lot of middle a lot of stuff in the middle people hurdles and so I um, wanted to create a way that was direct, low cost, you know, more and and we did it initially with individual deals. We moved to these mini portfolios. I mean, you're talking about maybe 15 deals in a portfolio. Like a typical REIT might, public REIT might have like 500. Yeah. So it's still very specific. Um, but the, the, the goal is basically to get to a better return using technology and using new, re new regulations. That's the essence of it. Um, 
the difference between individual property and a portfolio, I mean, we can debate the pros and cons of it. There's a lot of advantages for an individual who wants some diversification. Um, there's, there's, there's definitely advantages of a portfolio over individual property. If you're only investing $1,000 or $5,000, if you're investing quarter million, at some point it makes sense to look at individual properties. Mm-hmm. But at a, at a $5,000 chunk, there's, there's, a, there's really, um, I mean, it's, it's a question of what, what are you trying to achieve? I mean, our goal is basically how do we achieve the highest return possible? And that's, and the portfolio has a lot of advantages over individual deals. Okay. So that was the main driver for your company's shifting focus to the portfolio model was you believe it will per, uh, provide a better return? Yeah. I mean, o- over time, uh, you know, I mean, like anything, you might be able to buy one stock and that might be good, but you probably ought to own more than one stock, right? You want to own right. a few. And so the same, the same theory applies to real estate. You're, you know, the, 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 the key innovation is not buying one versus buying a, a portfolio. The key innovation is allowing people to go into private real estate that as a public investor with, with upfront costs of, of nearly I mean, as, as low, low, low as we can. I mean, it's more like a Vanguard approach to mm-hmm. private real estate. Okay. Cause yeah, Vanguard is the one, like I have some of my money in their REIT. So basically like the advantage with going with a smaller E-REIT is that you're essentially getting your money into a pool of investments that haven't really been inflated. Uh, their value hasn't been overstated by all these middlemen and, and brokers and all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the real estate okay. space, like where I am, like a real estate um, operator will know that the public markets are, are a premium to the pri- private markets. Like that same property mm. in the public markets will, will be will priced higher than the private markets. And there's a lot of REITs that all they do is basically produce return is buy public, I mean, buy private real estate and essentially sell it public. So there's okay. just, there's just arbitrage that they're, that they're, they're doing. And I just, I just say, well, you don't if I, as an individual, as an individual investor, like why, why do I want to pay that arbitrage between the public private markets? I'll just go direct into the private markets. Mm. But that's never been possible till, till we started E-REIT. Gotcha. So, um, there, there's actually some really cool stuff that, that I, I kind of want to tangent into, but it's it's on my list. I'm going to hold back. Like you have accountability stuff, which I think is pretty awesome. Um, but but I want to go into maybe the practical. You have two funds. Um, you have your income e-read and your growth e-read. Uh, can you kind of explain the difference and what they are? Be- yeah. Yeah, yeah. So basically, we created two different e-reads. The first e-read is the income e-read, and that's basically a portfolio of debt. So we lend to real estate companies where a lender, either a senior lender or a mezzanine lender. So we where we sit in the sort of like a second, almost like a second trust. What and just to be clear, what that means is like you have either first or second in line. If like the the thing defaults, you get paid first. Yeah. Yeah, so so it's a, it's generally lower risk than equity, um, shorter like maturity. They'll pay you off sooner, and um, and then usually have more current income. So it's you know the lender is going to get paid their interest, and sometimes the equity doesn't get any cash flow while you're while you're um, you know growing the the property, mm-hmm. so or or developing it. 
So basically, it's a, they also call this thing a mortgage REIT. It's, fu- it's like fundamentally a mortgage REIT. It's, mm. it's basically made up of 50, uh, approximately 15 properties that all create current cash flow. But because they're fundamentally debt, there's not much appreciation in the debt, right? There's just mm. a lot of um, income. And so that's what we call the income REIT. So if you say like you have like the 15 properties and that's that's the total number, um, you could expect the the dividends that you would get from this to be fixed because it's debt, it's a fixed rate, that's what you yep. get. Yep. Um, now, as you get dividends, is your balance to like with Fundrise decreasing because the loan is being paid back? Um, most of our loans don't amortize, but yeah, I mean, basically you get a dividend, uh, I mean, once this, once our income read is fully deployed, which it almost is, uh, you, you would have, you'd invest in this portfolio that just has a set dividend right now. It's a 10% dividend mm-hmm. and, uh, paid quarterly. And then it just, you know, in some ways just sort of like, it's like a little engine that produces cash flow from these, this little portfolio of, of, of debt and, um, and then over time, as those loans either they you know they come due and they pay off, or the developer pays off early, we have that, and we can return principal or reinvest it. Basically, it's it operates like a um, like a little bit like a bond, a, a, a portfolio bond. So if I invested ten thousand dollars in an income REIT and then I disappeared for like fifty years, at or however long the term is, when I came back, I would have nothing invested through you anymore because I would have gotten all the interest and principal paid to me. Uh, as assuming as, you know, assuming everything Obviously, if there's no, as expected, right? Yeah, basically, what happens is that there would be dividends, and then at some point, the principal would get returned, and and probably uh, the REIT eventually. Um, liquidates and returns principal. Mm. Okay. So, so for this REIT, I, I I think Andrew was telling me that you guys don't charge fees unless it earns a specific percentage. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, that's a different. So that's a something we um, an innovation or something we're testing. Okay. Which is that um, as an investor, I've never, I've always found it frustrating that the manager gets paid no matter what. Mm-hmm. And basically, I'm paying. I mean, I have sort of to say, like, why well, I'm an investor paying for performance, and so we set it up so that um, for the first two years, we don't get paid if you don't make a fifteen, fifteen percent okay. yearly return. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's like a high water mark, um, and and it's 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 sort of what we call I think we call it radical accountability. Mm-hmm. Is so is that all fees? Like entirely, or is it just like one specific fee? Um, I mean, our main fee is the asset management fee. We charge okay. a one. Well, if we hit our hurdle, we charge a one percent asset management fee, mm-hmm. which is like uh, you know. I mean, the, one of the other things that people don't realize is that you know, invest in Vanguard. Vanguard's just a wrap, mm. and you know, and then you're wrapping something else, and and then you probably you're probably investing in Vanguard through. E Trade or some other port. So you have like the, the platform, then you have Vanguard, and then you probably have uh, it in a REIT or even a REIT ETF. I mean, depending on, so you're paying, they're basically, no matter what, you're paying a number of fees. A typical REIT ongoing fees are probably 1.5% of 
one, one and a half percent, maybe I think one and a quarter. So ours are a little bit lower than theirs, but without all, you're direct, right? There's no other people in the middle. So we have, we should have lower ongoing fees as well. Okay. So this is for the first two years. Um, one like potential criticism I saw of this is that you can't redeem your shares within the first six months or something like that. And then there's like a penalty if you take it out within the first two years. Like how, how does it work with uh, liquidity options? Yeah. Uh, so we, this isn't, this is something we're evolving, but basically um, it's meant to be a long-term investment. You know, okay. if we're going to go like invest in a loan, right? We're going to let like lend money to a property. Once we lend that money, like we don't have it, like it's in the loan. So you come mm. back and say, well, I want my money back. You're like, well, we don't have it. It's in the property. There's like a, to get that, to, to create liquidity, there's, there's some cost to the REIT. We don't take the fee. It goes to the REIT. Okay. So there's a, a discount of a, um, a couple percent, depending on when you're redeeming, to, to, that gets paid to the other shareholders mm. for liquidating early. Because it'll basically compress their return. I mean, it... Okay. It, so it, basically, even though you're investing in a REIT, like the mindset you should have going into a product like this is, I am buying a building, pretty much. Yeah, you're in the, you're in the real estate. That's, that's one of the things we are working on, trying to make it clear that the REIT is just a pass-through vehicle. It doesn't even pay taxes, right? And right. ultimately, you're holding a handful of, of real estate assets that are illiquid, Mm -hmm. uh, so for us to be able to create that liquidity, we probably have to hold a little bit of cash in reserves for people who want, you know, some small number of people who want liquidity every quarter. Yeah. And that liquidity, that, that causes a drag on returns. And so essentially you pick up that drag by charging people who want out early a small discount. Gotcha. Listen Money Matters is brought to you by SoFi, a new kind of finance company. SoFi is helping people save money on their student loan debt. In fact, members who refinance our student loans save an average of $19,000, which is huge. On top of that, SoFi members get perks like one-on-one -on -one career coaching, resume building workshops, and tips on negotiating their salary. See how SoFi can help you at SOFI.com. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com slash legal. This week, we have a new sponsor on our show, and that is Casper, an online store that sells premium mattresses at a fraction of the cost you'll pay at a typical mattress store. Casper does away with mattress resellers, middlemen, and showrooms, and while that means you can't reenact that hilarious mattress store skit from Portlandia, it also means you get a premium quality mattress in exchange for far fewer of your dollar bills. Where other mattresses can often run you over $1,500, the Casper mattress starts at just $500 for a twin size and scales up to only $950 for a king, and that also includes free delivery and returns if you're in the US or Canada. Now, if you've been listening to our show for a while, you've probably heard Andrew and I talk before about how we're absolutely willing to spend more money on quality when it comes to things that have a large effect on our lives. And the place where you spend a third of that life is no exception. Fortunately, Casper eliminates the need to spend extra while not budging an inch on the quality. Their mattresses are made right here in America, and it's the product of thousands of hours of engineering, combining both springy latex and a supportive memory foam that come together to give you just the right sink, 
and just the right bounce. That's why the Casper mattress was named one of the best inventions of 2015 by Time Magazine and is now the most awarded mattress of the decade. Now, Casper understands that the idea of buying a mattress online can be a bit weird, which is why they've made the process absolutely risk-free by offering a 100-night trial. You can try sleeping on a Casper mattress for over three months, and if you decide you don't like it, Casper will come pick it up and refund you every single penny, which, to me, sounds way more logical than laying on a showroom mattress for 30 seconds while you look up at a tile seat and listen to 90s music on a loudspeaker. So, if you're in the market for a better quality mattress and a better mattress buying experience, you can go to casper.com listen, and if you use the code listen at checkout, you can get $50 towards any mattress purchase within their terms and conditions. Thanks so much to Casper for supporting our show. So one of the things that I, I found fascinating, and, and maybe it's because it, this will like show my level of like nerdity, is that uh, like you invest in a REIT through Vanguard, and you trust that there's like a couple hundred thousand homes somewhere on this planet that they've bought, and then things are working. Um, every deal that you guys do, you provide all of the details. Uh, like the specs of the deal, there's I, I I don't know if it's like a not like a pro form maybe like a prospectus on the deal. Um, can you kind of explain like uh, the degrees of transparency involved here? Yeah, I mean this is this is when I mean, we launched eRead a few months ago, and we're and we're constantly trying to improve it. And so the the goal is to create as much transparency. I mean, the level of transparency we have is sort of it's still way higher than anywhere else in the market. We want to just keep improving it, and and so you know we'll say let's take a, a loan, make a loan. You, know, you can we have the you know obviously the address of the property, the the loan to cost, loan to value, like how much equity is junior to us, all sorts of information about the property, um, about the about about um, the sponsor maybe. There's a lot of information that I mean a small percentage of people are interested in going into the weeds mm. and seeing. You know what it is, and you know why we liked it, and we try to. I mean, we we still. I still believe in giving people a, a lot of um, of uh, granularity around individual deals, but most people, you know, if I say here's a senior loan in you know in Los Angeles, here's a senior loan in Washington D.C., most you know there's a lot of complexity around that, and it's hard for people to say which is better. Mm-hmm. So so we try to try to. Um, uh, uh, simplify that by by diversifying and then having our performance or our, our our fees basically subordinate to performance. So you you get the in a, in a sense like our our fees were lower now than they were before. Mm. Okay. So can you explain what NAV is? I've been reading a few things and I'm not exactly sure what what that stands for. Yeah, I mean NAV stands for net asset value. And okay. it basically is your share price. So every okay. quarter, the the share price will will we, you know we we do an analysis. We and we have like a bunch of third parties help us set you know the 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 value of all each individual property, mm-hmm. which for for a loan portfolio is not that complicated, right? I mean, have a portfolio. You have a property of a loan. Is it cash flowing? You know what's the status of it? Okay, probably it's still at par. Um, but it, the point of it is basically, if, especially as we start creating more mechanisms so people can have liquidity on a quarterly basis. Mm-hmm. You know, 
you're going to want to essentially liquidate your shares at the net asset value, like not hmm. not at your original purchase price, but what's the what's the value if the properties are appreciated over two years and there's been a lot of development or whatever there is is created value. You're going to want to have that reflected in your asset in your net asset value in your share price. So it's basically like if you bought Apple stock, like what the price would be right now, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, but it, but you know, for real estate, um, I mean, this is one of the other things I think wrong with public markets when so real estate is not is just not fundamentally something that actually changes day to day. Okay. You know, it's uh, I actually I know a, guy, a big real estate developer in D.C. And he calls it the get rich slow business, mm. and so it's uh, you know you you buy real estate and it takes a long time for neighborhoods to change around the real estate. You know, just the construction. And one one of the big differences between our E-REIT and like buying in the public markets is you're buying a primary from us. It's not a secondary. Most REITs, you, most public stocks or bonds or REITs, you're buying from someone else. Okay. You know, you say, okay, like, um, I own the stock and you want to buy it and you're, you're going to trade. But you're not actually, like, um, investing in building anything. Right. Just, and so, so when you go you're to invest... investing on perceived value yeah, it's a, of per- a share. Yeah, perceived value, right. Right. And so when you're investing in a primary, it's going to, into the actual real estate or the actual, pro- you know, or maybe the actual company in the case of a, of a, of a you know, a, whatever, like a different kind of investment, maybe a, if you're investing like a tech company. When yeah. you invest in the, in the actual asset, you know, this, it takes time to create value. It's, it's, it's kind of different because you, you don't expect uh, your house to come out with the iPhone, you know, next year or, or your house's, I don't know, CEO to be indicted or something like it's not, there's not all the speculation. So I guess it's it makes definitely sense. less it's just there's definitely it's sitting less. there and it gets but rent. But if you're building, yeah, so you might have a house that's like rented and that's pretty simple. I have a loan on that house. It's even simpler. Mm-hmm. But if you're building a new house, right. And let's say you, you're, you're funding a construction of a new house or new apartment building. It really like the value basically is like when you finish the construction and you lease it and yeah. in, the, in the middle of the construction, you know, it's, it's a, it's the value is not really created fully until the thing's delivered. That's like, right. you're, and this is something I've found with a lot of individual investors. They're not used to investing into like a real thing. Mm-hmm. You're used to basically like buying on this basic, just maybe paper. It's just trading yeah. paper. And so they're not, there's like an education process saying, well, you, you're, you're building something and you, to, to capture the value, you need to see it through. Right. Mm. But then one, sorry, one more thing, but mm. one of the advantages of it is that it's real. You know, mm. a lot of the paper trading, like a lot of that value you can just poof, you know, because whatever reason. So when you're in a real asset or you're real, you know, you're actually investing in something that's like happening, um, there's a lot more kind of like tangibility and like reliability to the to what's what gets delivered. Okay. I mean, I think one of the cool things is I'm just looking at the you know in the income REIT like the different things that I'm in, I'm invested in, and one of them is like a two unit New York condo renovation in Long Island, and at the very bottom there's a map, and I imagine if I was so bored or whatever, I could show up and look at the physical place and like see the thing that I'm invested in. Yeah, yeah. And if you knew, I mean, I don't know if you guys are um, familiar with like 
what's happening in Long Island City. Basically, this this property is right near the subway. So you're essentially like, a, I don't know how long. It's like one stop to Grand Central Station. Mm. So it's like seven minutes. And it's basically Manhattan at that point. Yeah, there's so much growth happening in Long Island City. That loan, um, if you look at basically our position versus basically what the guy thinks he's going to sell it at, it's just huge, huge margin. And so we, I felt really good about about that project, and um, you know whether the the guy completes it and sells it for millions of dollars per per unit, or we end up basically, I mean, you know, in unforeseen and sort of unhappy circumstances, we have to take it over. We could sell it for half of what he's needing to sell it for, and still make all your money back. And yeah. To be clear for this deal, like you only care that you make back the loan, right? Like, so if he profits a hundred million dollars on this property, it's really irrelevant because you just need to make sure that the debt is covered. Yeah. So that's basically a difference between an income rate and a growth rate, which is which is kind of where I want to go because I feel like part of this this discussion we've been like dancing around uh, the growth rate. And I think a lot of people, when they think of real estate, will understand the growth part more. Um, so I definitely want you to go into it. And, and to be clear, like, is it as straightforward as you buy this property, you know, Fundrise, and I invest in the growth REIT, and so I own this property with you into perpetuity? Yeah, yeah. So that's basically the growth REIT. That's exactly how it works. Um, it's a, It's... It's a little bit more complicated owning real estate than lending to real estate, or it's a lot more complicated, and we can nerd off about about some of the issues around why. But um, one of the, we we heard back from a lot of people that they you know wait I want to I want to you know if that if that kind of project he sells it for a crazy number I want to be part of that, mm. and so um, we created the growth rate, and as a result, it has a uh, you know more potential appreciation and more risk and that's the trade-off and and it has and usually when you like um like think about that condo project it's a good example you know during the two years it takes them to build it and permit it in new york city you know we're going to get our interest payments i can't remember what it was for that deal but you know double digit interest payments you're saying you need the interest payments in the income rate yeah the income rate mm. but if you if you own that property you're getting no income until he sells it mm. There's a lot less income on the growth rate in the short term, mm. um, and so you really you, usually you trade you have less income um, and more risk in exchange for more upside potential. And to be clear, uh, the goal with the growth rate is eventually to like, I mean, for lack of a better term, flip it or sell it, or or are there properties where you're going to buy it, and the goal is like we're going to rent this out to people forever. And make money that way. Yeah, I mean, so the the the, the goal of, of REITs are to to make income from rents, mm-hmm. and so we're we, the properties where we're that we're you know focused on are um, you're trying to buy a property. Usually, we've been focused on apartment buildings. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you try to buy an apartment building at a at a at a really good price that gets income. Maybe it gets you know seven eight percent. Uh, income a year from it because there's people paying rent and then either it's going to appreciate in value because you bought it right and there's like growth in the neighborhood or Mm -hmm. you can renovate units so you can go in there replace like you know 
appliances or the, or the countertops and, and charge instead of charging, you know, whatever, $1,100 a month for that two bedroom, you can charge, you know, $1,300 a month. Hmm. So a lot of what we've done in, in the growth rate is focus on um, th- that type of apartment project because, um, I mean, we can talk about the general economy, but we've really seen the most sort of the best risk adjusted return in kind of value add apartment projects. Now, um, you're, you're collecting rent from these, these properties. Uh, where does the appreciation come in? Because I mean, if you're never selling them, I never get that as an investor. Well, so there's two possible ways. I mean, it's, we, we have to reflect it legally. We have to reflect it in the the NAV every quarter. Mm. Mm-hmm. So as as the as the you know as we as we renovate apartment units you know when we replace countertops or um, you know there's there's been something maybe if somebody opens a Whole Foods next door there's it gets captured in, in an asset value quarter to quarter yeah and then um, you know even even with the growth rate we're we're still contemplating over a maybe a five to seven year period to um, to sell the real estate I mean. Ultimately, people want from us is performance. And, right, and, right. And if a, if a building is, if a, somebody shows up and they're going to pay a good price for a building, we're going to make money. You know, we're not, we're not orthodox about it. We're going to mm. sell it. Right. Just as a little aside there, when because you, you mentioned Whole Foods, um, I read like a few pages of the Zillow book when I was in the bookstore uh, in Portland a few months ago, and they have like this really cool data of like how house prices go up if there's a Starbucks within like a mile radius or something. Yeah, and, and Whole Foods. I did actually. I did like a research project and did a blog post about that because we've done a bunch of real estate deals near Whole Foods. Oh yeah, it definitely. I mean, I mean, it makes sense. So obvious. Like I've way. been looking for places for my next move, and like my criteria, I have like literal circle maps with radius diagrams. And I'm like, all right, how many coffee shops and where's the Whole Foods? Where's the <laughs> grocery store? <laughs> I don't want to drive anywhere. Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So I mean, that's that's how you buy good real estate. Because mm-hmm. you, what you do is, you know, over, this is one of the interesting things about real estate. You can, I mean, like Whole Foods may announce a location, like in a neighborhood, mm-hmm. but the prices won't capture that for the fact that Whole Foods is going to be there until Whole Foods open. And even after it opens, people don't realize it takes, there's a big lag between when something's going to happen and when it gets reflected in the neighborhood pricing. Yeah. So you can, so you can basically buy an apartment building near Whole Foods that's planned. Or maybe you even know what's playing and no one else does, right? Because you're, you know, maybe you're in the industry. Right. And then three, four, five years later, there's been a ton of appreciation from that Whole Foods. And you just, by, by being able to just know what's happening in a neighborhood, you can, you can capture that value. That's, that's basically how you make money in real estate. I mean, fundamentally, yeah. the best real estate investments are the ones where the, someone else is doing the work for you. Mm-hmm. Because it's, I mean, it's so hard. Development, which I've done, is like uh, that is not easy. <laughs> so it I, almost I, sounds like a legal form of insider trading. Which like, real estate? Just just knowing where the Whole Foods is going to go. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. Okay, yeah, I so mean, I had a couple of questions going back to the NAV thing, real quick. I'm trying to wrap my head around this. Is is kind of like the ideal investor behavior there here to invest and then just basically make money off the dividends forever? Uh, I mean, I would say that's the ideal investor behavior for, that's what all investors should do. 
you know, okay. re- regardless of what you know with e-read versus i mean the, the right isn't the classic mistake of of an investor to basically sell when it's when it's scary and buy when it feels really yeah. like hot i mean it's the compounding power of of interest rates is is how you make money in the long term so right. but we but most people you know they they don't have that same like um discipline okay so See, we have to create quarterly liquidity and 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 shorter term horizons. You know, five years rather than fifty. Yeah, I guess that was a question. Looking at your uh, SEC documents, there's like a effective redemption price. Like, if you cash out all your shares three years after you invest, it's ninety seven percent of that. So basically, uh, am I right in saying like that's basically like a three percent fee if you want to sell your shares? Yeah, but it gets paid to the other reinvestors, investors, not to me. Okay, gotcha. Because I guess it's a penalty to pull out from the property itself, or they have to jimmy rig something so so that the yeah. actual investors who remain don't lose. Right. Okay. Right. So, so if we- you were an investor looking at Fundrise as a potential, like I might cash out in the future, what you need to do is is extrapolate that three percent over X number of years, and you can get like an effective asset management fee, right? Well, I mean, uh, um, as, as I said, some of these portfolios are, are you know, have, a, let's say, a five-year business plan where we would try to like sell all the properties or sell the REIT mm-hmm. within a time horizon because people really are looking for definitive time frames to for them when they, how long are they investing? Okay. So, so um, you really would want to look at it as this is the this is the REIT. It has a five-year business plan. And at the end of five years, the you know the management intends to sell the real estate or sell the REIT. But if I want to get out early because you know for whatever reason I'm going to get married or something, um, there's a way, there's a mechanism, and okay. that has a small a small discount to that gets paid to the, your shareholders. And if you're a shareholder, you're getting that from other investors. So are you saying that you know say the REIT does have a five year business plan? that 97% uh, effective redemption price penalty basically would only apply to the, you know, sometime before the life of the E-REIT comes right. to an end. It's not like your money is just going to stay there in perpetuity. No, no, it only gets, it only gets charged if you redeem early. Okay. So is, are there current uh, business plan timeframes on the two E-REITs you guys are running right now? Yeah, yeah. In the docs, there, it, I, I, I think for the it was five years Okay. And I have, to, I have to go look at the growth rate. Off the top of my head, I feel like it might be five to or five to seven on the growth rate. Like, so how did that work? Like you buy into it, and then five years down the road, I get an email saying, "Hey, we're gonna sell this REIT. Do you want to move your money over to our next product, or do you want to get out?" Like, is that how it would work? Probably. Okay. Um, we we talked about uh, the accountability of the income REIT, and I think that was like very clear. Like, if it doesn't earn 15%, you just don't charge a fee, so it's managed for free. And I'll say that like I've, I've gotten my first dividend payment, I don't know, like a few months ago or a month ago. It was like 9.7% annualized. Mm-hmm. So I mean, we'll see. I mean, maybe I'll and to be clear, it. it's just for two years though, right? Um, yeah, that's just, I guess, until okay. what, like end of 2017 or something for you guys, yeah. Ben. Um, but uh, there's also a radical accountability piece on the growth E-REIT. Um, the risky one, mm. uh, but it is not as clear as just like no fee. Uh, and it sounds like you're going to pay us if you don't make like a lot of money. So could you kind of like elaborate on that, Ben? 
Yeah, so, so uh, you know, the growth read is meant to focus on appreciation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you don't, really don't know how much the thing's appreciated until you sell. So it's on the exit. And so basically we, we structured it where we pay a, a fee. We, we funderize management, uh, us, the, the parent corporation, pays like a penalty if we don't hit certain hurdles. So if we don't hit a 20 um, annual return, then we pay 500 grand to the REIT. And if we, you know, if we, if we don't hit a 19, if we hit a 19, then we pay, um, sorry, 19%. we have, sorry, I misspoke. If we don't, I, th- I think it's, if we hit, I think I have to look at this chart at 500 grand. We pay, if we don't hit a 15, if we had a 16, we pay 400 grand. If we hit a 17, we pay 300 grand. If we had 18, we pay 200 grand. If we had a 19, we pay 100 grand. So basically yeah. the higher the performance, the, the lower the penalty to, that we pay. So the point okay. is basically is to incentivize us to perform, and if we don't perform, we we it costs us. But but look, so say you get seventeen percent or less return, right? So it's five hundred yeah. grand you have to pay in. Um, so as an investor, does that mean I get like an extra dollar? Like how do, how does that like is five hundred grand added in to a ten million dollar investment? Is a five hundred grand added in to like a hundred million dollar investment? Like it's actually put straight into your bank account, Andrew. Like yeah, do I get five hundred grand? I hope yeah, it's that one. You're first on the list <laughs> for the five hundred grand. <laughs> yeah, I would go to- <laughs> I, as long as we're clear on that. Okay, yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. That's 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 what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, good. Yeah. No. I mean, it it's, it gets paid to the whole. Uh, the whole for the whole read is fifty million dollars. So it's if you think about it, it's like uh, um, equivalent to one year of our if uh, on fully stabilized uh, at one percent asset management fee. It's it's equivalent to one year of our salary. One year of our of our fee. Okay. Paid. So okay. it's it's still both both accounts like are very unusual. I don't know another investment house in the country that where you have like a, your fees are tied to performance, not just like you have like a lot. You know, they have this twenty percent promote or twenty percent carried interest that a lot of hedge funds charge, and that. That's tied to performance, but their base asset management fee, which is usually two percent, um, is just paid irrespective. Hmm. Gotcha. Um, these two uh, e-reits um, are, have been awesome, at least for me to invest in, like kind of see how it's playing out. Um, I'm definitely making money on it, but I want to understand uh, how you go about finding these properties like what kind of strategy are you executing i mean is i imagine it's not something i can just go out and be like just picking like a building like, right, let's just do that one like what what are your criteria so uh about a third of the real estate sort of the, the team or there's 30 people at Punrise, and a third of them are like real estate people who are come from Know, previous real estate development companies or, or real estate private equity funds, and they—that's where I come from. And you know, real estate, like I guess all all deal making is a kind of a brutal business. Mm. You really have to grind it out. Nobody gives you a good deal. You have to like get a good deal. And and so our our hypothesis has been informed by you know my experience for like almost twenty years now in real estate 
where you really want to be competing where the institutional investors, where the big guys are not playing. If a big guy, if BlackRock, if some big investment house is interested in that investment, they're going to bid the price up. They're going to basically make it so that it's not attractive from a pricing point of view. Mm. And so we always try to go below the radar. Uh, and the income, re- I think our average investment, our average loan is like about $3 million. So that's very small for a... Um, for for a, like institutional investor usually won't write a check less than ten million dollars, mm-hmm. so we have less competition. So we this, they call it small balance commercial. So it's basically small, um, and we we make we make our returns effectively by just by being more nimble, more you know, more hustle in this sort of below the radar piece of the uh, of the real estate market. Gotcha. And, yeah, and so and then we know how do we do it? We look at hundreds, hundreds of deals. We you know we sent, we negotiated that. We underwrite. You know we there's there's underwriting. We we produce like this hundred page, fifteen hundred page like underwriting memo, looking mm-hmm. at all the issues involved. I mean, there's just so many. There's so much complexity in the commercial real estate, and you can't take anything for granted. There's just, I mean, it's not like the public markets when you're buying a stock where there's some regulatory framework. Right. When you when you're buying a building from a guy, like anything goes. All sorts of crazy things can you can go into that building and discover that, you know, the structural foundation has been like, you know, compromised and the and the seller was lying to you. I mean, there's just so many things that can can happen and and do happen in real estate because uh, uh there's sort of I mean, because you're dealing with this sort of a big boy game, right? Everybody, all sellers and buyers, probably millionaires or, or, or even, you know, much bigger than that. There's, it's, it's like, you know, you have to make sure that nobody's looking out for you, but you. Mm. Mm. So is this still a product people can get into for like a thousand dollars? Like it was when you guys started out or is it changed? Yeah, we make it a thousand dollar minimum. So it's okay. a very, very low minimum. Uh, we try to make it so that you can, you can test it out I and mean, put a thousand dollars in it and, and, and see how it performs. Yeah. And you know, um, the essence of our, our argument, right. Is like lower fee direct use technology to, to cut costs and, and, and to drive higher performance. Right. And, and it's just over the next like five, 10 years, like that's the proof is going to be, you know, do we outperform basically stocks, public reads does a more direct low cost model like Vanguard for private real estate outperform everything else. Yeah. So, I mean, I know Fundrise is pretty new, so maybe we can look at this question in terms of like Vanguard's been around for a while. For the average investor, what do you think is a good percentage of their portfolio to be put into real estate? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, so for real estate generally, I think the average investor has maybe one commercial real estate, maybe one percent of their portfolio in commercial real estate. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen lots of studies that show that a uh, um, 10 to 20 percent in alternatives adds or adds to the total return on portfolio. They call it the Yale model. Okay. Yale endowment been pursuing this sort of by having 20 percent of your portfolio in things like real estate or um, forestry, things like that are not pure stocks and bonds. It you end up with a higher return, right. and and that's I think that's going to be a big shift in how individuals invest. That they, I mean. Not only do you do you, the stock market 
I don't know what the return stock market is going to be because the pricing is so high today. Mm-hmm. But it, it has a natural amount of volatility. Right. And, and that volatility, I mean, another way to think about it is um, you are paying a liquidity premium when you buy stocks and bonds, right? You're paying, uh, I call it like a, um, you know, because you that stock is, you can sell it any day. You're paying uh, probably, I mean, like a, a typical public REIT may have like a four or five percent dividend, and you know our income REIT has like a ten percent dividend. Mm-hmm. So that difference is largely because it's 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 public and you can trade it, and so you're paying that up front, like a, you know double. I mean, essentially almost double the price. Um, if you don't need that daily liquidity. You shouldn't pay for it. We only we only yeah. we only we only charge you, and we charge you much much less if you exiting early. And if you don't ever exit early, you don't pay that premium at all. And that's okay. a big difference in how to structure how we structure this this like kind of like online direct investment model. Mm-hmm. Cool. Was that well, did it make sense? Was it kind yeah, of, I think so. I think so. Kind of a um, technical so I guess nail, last question here is why the wait list? Yeah, I mean, when we launched it we, with the e which we launched in December, you know, we didn't really know if um, how people would respond. It was a very new product. Mm-hmm. I know I'd never done this before. And so, um, and we have like, we have one person who handled, you know, whatever, like 50,000, 80,000 people. And so we said, well, let's just like open it up and see how it goes and open it up like uh, once or twice a week. And and it was a way to manage the the, the amount of like um, demand. You know, you have like millions of dollars and hundreds of people transacting in like twenty minutes, and so it it helps us process the the amount of demand we have because there's it's it, our our models keep the keep the costs down. Yeah. So I'd rather have less less overhead people here mm-hmm. and take less money. Right. So that we can basically perform. I, I have to say, Thomas, you like read my mind sometimes because, uh, Ben, <laughs> we, we talked to, to your people uh, and, and we, we negotiated a deal. So if they go to listenmymatters.com slash fundrise, uh, they're going to they're gonna get in like at the top of the list. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, so that's pretty good because there's a big waiting list. <laughs> there's a big mom, waiting list. My mom is always super frustrated. She's like, "Why can't I get in?" And I'm like, "Sorry, mom, you know, you just got to like get on the list." <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ben's mom, if you're listening to this, you can use our link. She Which oh, I didn't God. know about, so Andrew, I didn't read your mind quite as good as you thought I did. I know. I, I was like, I was like, oh, I have to make sure I say this at the end. And I was like, "Oh, Thomas, like you just <laughs> teed it up for me." <laughs> yep. All right. Um, Ben, I think you mentioned that you had a blog too. So if you want people to read that, like, what, what's your blog? Um, I mean, you know, we just write about like, uh, you know, commercial real estate, and people just are not used to investing in commercial real estate. It's just mm-hmm. like there's buildings all around them, apartment buildings, skyscrapers, office buildings, and it never really occurred to people that they could own it. They're used to owning, you know, Budweiser and all sorts of companies. Yeah. But but it's like, um, you know, like the building, the apartment building I live in, you know. It'll be here in 20 years, but like I don't know if Google or Yahoo will. 
Right. Not Yahoo. They won't I guess, like, <laughs> conceptually, it seems easier to imagine like a tornado hitting my building that I'm invested in than, uh, you know, than the, the president running the company I'm invested in, like doing something stupid. When in reality, it's probably more likely that the, the people mistakes are going to happen. And, you know, the market volatility is going to make something happen. So, and I have, you know, you can insure the tornado risk away. It's true. So can I insure CEOs? Can we get CEO insurance? Mm. Stupidity insurance? <laughs> I think I just came up with a new industry. Yeah. <laughs> go. You make a lot of money until, until you lose it all. <laughs> so, but I mean, anyway, so we, we've spent a lot of time on the, our blog, Fundrise blog, okay. trying to teach people, teach, I mean, explain a lot of this intricacy because it's, you're gonna, you have to kind of build up a world of analysts and experts who end up being kind of like what there is in the public markets for stocks and bonds who are constantly looking at the, at the underlying docs and criticizing the companies and, and you know, sleuthing out where the value is. You have some cool stuff on there. Actually, like two stuck out. You have uh, the limitations of internal rate of return for predicting investment success. And there's like charts with like numbers. So I really like that. And then there was also one. It was like top 16 investing blogs of 2016. I really like that one too. It's the, it's the way to get Andrew interested. Charts and numbers. That's right. And flattery. Flattery will get you everywhere. Why are we on there? Yeah. Oh, we are on there. I, I like how the Mr. Money Mustache is on there, and it's like our image. I know. We made that image. <laughs> that is, yeah. <laughs> nice. All right, Ben. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, we'll have links to Fundrise and our link to Fundrise in the show notes, along with the blog link. Other than that, if you guys want to uh, ask us any personal finance questions, you can either email us, listenmoneymatters at gmail.com, or check out our community of money nerds over at listenmoneymatters.com slash join. And lastly, our toolbox of money resources, books, apps, all that kind of cool stuff, which Andrew is constantly tinkering with and making cooler, is <laughs> listenmoneymatters.com slash toolbox. So, guys, thank you for listening. We'll see you in next week's episode. And Andrew and Ben, talk to you guys later. Thanks, later, guys. man. about this show. We'd like to thank SoFi for supporting the show. If you have debt, you should make it cheaper. Visit SoFi.com for details. Take care of business every day.